it, everything is in process, everything is very dynamic, then God, uh, by implication, is also very dynamic um, and very involved with all of these processes going on in creation. And so uh, God is intimately involved with everything that's going on in the universe at every moment. That was Daniel P. Coleman, author of a new book called Presence and Process, A Path Toward Transformative Faith and Inclusive Community. And this book is really hopeful, expansive, and it takes you on a journey past dualistic thinking, past uh, systems that force you to believe things about God and about history that are just frankly unbelievable. And he, he takes us on a journey that weaves together Christian contemplation, Buddhist meditation, and process theology. Uh, and it's really, really fascinating uh, where he goes. Uh, I found Daniel to be uh, very interesting, very humble, and very helpful. And I think you're going to love this conversation. Now, I need to say that the audio, we had some problems with the audio. So some of it is a little um, just on the cloudy, muddled end in terms of audio. But I think it's very listenable. But I just need to say that on the outside. But take a listen and then check out the show notes for links to buy his book, to check out his website and all that good stuff. Enjoy. Everybody, I'm here with Danny Coleman, author of the book Presence and Process, A Path Toward Transformative Faith and Inclusive Community. Hey, Danny, so glad to have you on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Steve. I appreciate it. And I, as, as we were talking beforehand, um, I really am enjoying your book because I feel like it, it, it's bringing hope in a time in the religious realm that I think a lot of people are running toward the extremes, you know, like people aren't having many people, um, I find are not finding the courage, uh, to carve out a third way or a different way or an integrative way. And so your book, and we're going to talk about the three strands and apophatic prayer and all that sweet, good stuff. So I can't wait to dive into it. Um, but but my first question is a basic one, and that is, what's your spiritual background? Like, where did you grow up? How did you grow up believing? And what has been um, sort of the foundation? Well, um, I, I grew up uh, primarily in, in Denver. Um, I was raised in a, in a non-religious home. My, my parents um, were British. They grew up in, uh, in England in, in kind of a uh, post-Christian uh, world, uh, or a little less post-Christian then than now, but but still, uh, uh, church just wasn't really relevant to them. And uh, um, we eventually uh, immigrated uh, to the U.S. and and uh, so I grew up in Denver. Um, did not really have any exposure to uh, religion at all, other than maybe uh, once we got cable TV seeing uh, TVN uh, late at night on TV. <laughs> so the really good so, stuff. You got the really yeah. good stuff. And, and I, about all I picked up was that um, the, there's some guy named Jesus who died on a cross, and for some reason I was supposed to feel guilty about that, and I really did, didn't understand it. Yeah. 
Um, I do recall uh, going to church once as a child when I spent the night with a friend and um, they uh, recall that I must have been eight years old and they were singing a song about bringing in the cheese and uh, I, I got sort of excited about that um, and then disappointed that they did not in fact bring in was, any cheese. There was, no, there was no cheese to be found. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. So, uh, <laughs> that was really about it. And um, my religion, um, when I was about 14, I, I uh, started playing uh, the, the bass guitar and joined a, a neighborhood garage band and uh, decided that that was the meaning of life, was uh, um, sex and drugs and rock and roll. And my purpose in this world was to be a rock star. And so I uh, ended up for the next several years uh, until I was in my uh, mid twenties, um, pursued a, a career as a professional musician and, uh, traveled around the U S playing in various, um, mostly heavy metal bands. And, um, it was actually while in one of those heavy metal bands traveling through Texas, uh, traveling from Harlingen, Texas up to Beaumont, Texas, that I, um, sort of had a, an experience and, um, uh, my best friend who was in the band with me at the same time, we, we both sort of had a shared, I guess, spiritual experience, encounter with God. And um, I prayed the prayer, the sinner's prayer, and, and became a born-again Christian. Had absolutely no idea what that meant. Uh, and I can recall uh, looking up churches in the phone book and calling them up just at random um, and asking them questions and, and things like that. Um, eventually, uh, this was on tour with the band and we quickly realized that it was going to be a problematic being a Christian, uh, and living the kind of lifestyle we were living at that time. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so we, uh, came back uh, home to Denver and I started attending, uh, uh, a church called the Vineyard, yeah. uh, the Vineyard Christian Fellowship in Denver, which was Essentially, other than that cheese experience as a child, pretty much the, the first church uh, I had ever uh, been to. And uh, the thing that really struck me about it was I walked in. At, at the time, I was uh, oh my early 20s, very, very skinny um, from you know drug use and, and other things, long hair, multiple piercings, torn up jeans and t-shirt. And uh, I walked in and nobody batted an eye. Um, uh, you know, between the worship songs and the sermon, I go step outside to have a cigarette and there were a bunch of other people out there with me and I, um, just felt, uh, felt accepted. So that became my church home for many years, um, was part of the vineyard, um, and or vineyard style church. So uh, basically a charismatic evangelical churches. Uh, that's where I was baptized, where I met my wife, uh, where we were married, uh, etc. Um, over time, though, I, you know, as, as the years went by, I, I began to have more and more questions and and concerns, and and wondered about, um, you know, why didn't we talk about certain things, or why didn't we really system 
systematically learn the Bible or why um, or some things seem to be really emphasized and other things de-emphasized. And, um, and so that, that was kind of the launching point for, uh, for the quest that ultimately led me to, uh, to write this book. That's quite a background. I know the Vineyard um, has had a pretty long history of um, kind of warm acceptance of um, people like the way you described yourself. Um, and so, but then, but then, as you said, you, you have sort of progressed in your thinking and in your spiritual journey. One of the things that I love that you wrote kind of toward the beginning of the book on page 17, you wrote this, I gradually became convinced that there had to be something more something that was transformative, not as a grand future event, but right here and right now amidst the mundanities of everyday life. I underlined that, highlighted it, put exclamation points uh, behind it. Could you talk a little more about that process? You bet. And that was, um, you know, one of the things in the charismatic church, um, there's a real desire to experience God. Yeah. And um, I found for myself, um, though oftentimes what was going on around me was more outward manifestations of experiencing God, I always felt drawn inward um, and and quieter and, and more still, not, uh, you know, louder and more more active so I uh, felt a bit out of step there but over time you know after 20 years or so I just began to think you know is this it is is this what it's about being a Christian um, going to church on on Sundays and Thursdays and um, doing all of the various activities listening to to sermons going to seminars um, Bible studies and things like that, and and if I was really honest, I thought I, I looked at myself and thought, you know, how, how much how mature am I as a Christian? Am I really displaying the fruit of the Spirit? Uh, you know that that Paul wrote about in Galatians, for example. Do I really see that in my life, and do I see that in the lives of my peers? Do I see that in the lives of of our our leaders, our pastors? Um, and I really felt like there was something lacking. Yeah. And in in the charismatic church, we had put so much emphasis on um, this idea of this coming great revival. There, you know, whole theologies have been built up around it, and um, um, depending on which nook and cranny of the charismatic world you're in, it, you know, it can get very very specific about how this is going to happen and and all of all kinds of speculative details um, but there was so much energy put into that put into hoping for this great revival and praying for it and singing songs about it and um, the idea that there was there there was going to be this move of the spirit and it was always just over the horizon just around the corner yeah, yeah. Uh, it's the next generation, the, the kids that we're raising up right now, they're going to be the ones. And, you know, it, it was always just about to happen. And when it happened, it was going to make everything right. Yeah. And um, we would all have our, we would all know what we were supposed to do and what our place in it was. But then in the meantime, from day to day, um, we were 
you know, could be very uh, petty and angry and jealous and um, struggle with, you know, all kinds of, of things. And um, yeah, so I, I had to wonder, is this really it? Is it or is there something here and now? And I really had no idea what the here and now might be. What What is that thing that, that there's got to be something day to day, moment by moment, uh, and one thing I wondered about was the way that we were doing church, where um, the, the, the model we were doing, where most most of us were a passive audience. Yeah, yeah. And there were a small group of people who were, you know, kind of up on the stage doing the stuff, um, but most of us were consuming it. And so we, we had sort of been, been trained to be consumers and the, the church, is, uh, as somebody once wrote, became uh, an outlet for religious goods and services. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there, there had to be something, something else. And ultimately, um, my wife and I decided to try doing church a different way. And we left the, uh, the kind of what we called at that point the institutional church. Um, and we uh, did a house church for a while. Uh, which was a great experience. Um, and in the house church, the goal was that there would be no hierarchy. There would be, uh, uh, in fact, the, the thing that I kept hearing continuously um, from from the Spirit at that time was um, just sit down and shut up and let other people talk and do things. And... Uh, and what, what we found was when we made that space for other people to step up, they did. And we would have these uh, wonderful house church meetings where one person might share, uh, you know, a, a song they wanted to sing, and another person might pray, and another person might talk about something that had happened uh, during the week. And somebody else might have an insight from something they were reading in the Bible. And it was starting to sound a lot like you know, some of Paul's descriptions of Ecclesia uh, in his letters. So uh, it, was, it was a very interesting experience. Um, but I had no idea. We had no idea what we were doing. Yeah. And as I kept reading various books, books about house church and books about this and that, to try to understand how to do this, uh, I came up upon some writings of Quakers, and as I started to dig into those more, um, and a lot of these were written in the, the mid-1600s, so there was a bit of a uh, you know, language, uh, uh, you know, trying to, to deal with the, their, their nomenclature and all of yeah. that. But as, as I started to get into that and it started to make sense. And, and I thought, gosh, these folks were doing, you know, hundreds of years ago, they were doing what we're trying to do now. And maybe we can learn something from them. Um, eventually the, the house church came to an end and, uh, so my wife and I went and uh, um, started worshiping with Quakers and, and joined a Quaker church and ended up uh, uh, doing that for about 10 years or so. And that really shifted uh, my direction. Um, that was really my first 
actual exposure to contemplative spirituality yeah. um, was through the, Quaker, through the Quaker Church. That's beautiful. And I think that leads me to the next question. I want to talk about, I want you to talk about cataphatic and apophatic <clears throat> prayer and the difference between <clears throat> those two, because I think most folks in the Western, especially evangelical church, have really no concept or very little concept of what apophatic prayer is or even that it's a thing. Um, I grew up going to churches where, you know, all the prayers were spontaneous and they were filled with words. Like there was no silence in in the church service at all. There was not one moment of, not, not even a second of silence. It was all filled with uh with words or with songs or with mm-hmm. moments and so um talk to us about the difference between cataphatic and apophatic and maybe give some examples of how those how that understanding helped you toward this path that you're on now yeah um and my experience was similar to yours um it wasn't until uh really the house church where in desiring to make room, make space for other people, that also meant um, allowing silence to occur. Yeah, and and becoming comfortable with silence. And and yeah, typically the idea was you know silence is dead air, and we can't have that. Something has to, has to be going on. It's it's funny in a in a large congregation that's not used to it. Um, if you introduce silence. Um, it can be discomforting, but it, it can also be incredibly powerful. Yeah. Um, so we started, yeah, we started becoming comfortable with that, with, with silence, more with the idea of, of then making space if somebody's feeling a bit reluctant that they could speak up. But then with the Quakers, silence took on a whole, whole deeper, richer uh, meaning because of uh, you know the Quaker theology around it, which is their silence is a a listening silence, um, listening to what the Holy Spirit might be saying, and then um, discerning whether if you feel like you're getting something from the Holy Spirit, is that something just for you or something that should be shared with the group, and things like that. But that idea, that silence is sort of uh, the entry point for me uh, into the apophatic whereas the cataphatic was what I had always experienced. So cataphatic, which basically means um, the, the positive way. It means you're adding things or you're using things. So, for example, you're using um, words, you're using images, you're using concepts. Uh, take, you know, pretty much any uh, worship song and it's very cataphatic in that we're saying things about God, about Jesus. You are this, you are this, you are this. And, uh, and so we're employing, uh, these concepts and images. Um, the, uh, uh, um, Ignatius of Loyola, um, who founded the, uh, uh, the, the the Catholic order, the, the uh, Society of Jesus, also known as the Jesuits, he developed a, a really powerful and intense cataphatic spiritual um, method, or, or they call them the, the uh, spiritual exercises. Yeah. And the idea behind the Ignatian exercises was to imagine yourself 
in uh, let's say in a gospel story there you are on the dirt path with Jesus and the hot sun is beating down and you can smell the animals and and you're walking along and the dust is coming up and and you come upon a leper and you know you get very very detailed and you're you're using your rational mind your imagination and you're putting yourself into this story and it can be very very powerful so that's an example of a cataphatic um, spiritual exercise apophatic on the other hand is the idea of uh, negating it's it's sometimes called the, the negative way um, it's sometimes referred to as uh, also the the way of uh, the way of unknowing or uh, even the way of darkness it's sometimes called so the idea with the apophatic is you're letting go of images and of thoughts and uh, of concepts about God. And the goal in doing that is to come to a point where you can uh, have a direct experiential encounter with God, but you're not conceptualizing the experience. You're not narrating the experience. Um, you're just being in the experience itself. Uh, so uh, some of the early Christian uh, mystics, folks like uh, Evagrius, they would talk about when during the time that you're practicing you know, Christian contemplation, apophatic Christian contemplation, that's the goal is to let go of thoughts, surrender your thoughts, uh, surrender your rational way of looking at things, even surrender your self-reference, your um, you know, coming from a viewpoint, let all of that go. In a sense, um, don't hold on to anything. One of the challenges with, uh, you know, uh, thinking about God, uh, employing concepts about God is that, of course, God is beyond all of our thoughts and our concepts and our images. There's, there's no way we can ever encapsulate or capture God in our thoughts and concepts. And that doesn't mean they're a bad thing. It just means that they have a limitation. Right. And so uh, on the apophatic side, it's sort of acknowledging that, recognizing that, and saying, so I'm just going to set all of that stuff aside and just be here in stillness, in quietness, in stillness of mind. And... Um, if thoughts or images or concepts, no matter how awesome or holy or, you know, theologically great they are, if they come up, I'm just going to let them go, let them pass on by. So I'm emptying myself, essentially, yeah. with the goal of, of uh, having that encounter. And the two are not um, in opposition to each other. Right, right. It's, it, it, very often, it, it's the way that it's employed is that cataphatic forms of worship are used to lead into uh, apophatic forms of, you know, of contemplation. And so they're very complementary. Uh, but as you say, in, uh, in the modern church, um, the apophatic way and all of the riches of that apophatic way have, have largely been uh, lost. 
Yeah, and I, I wonder, Danny, I'd, I'd love to hear you, what you think about this, but I, you know, as I've talked to people over the years as a pastor, frequently, uh, like I'll talk to someone in their 40s or in their late 30s who's been uh, walking with God for a long time, and they'll they'll meet with me and they'll be frustrated. They'll say, you know, I don't have much of a prayer life anymore. All the words I seem to use just fall flat. And I, 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 I'm, I feel like I'm losing my faith or I feel like I'm losing my ability to pray. And I typically say in that moment, congratulations. I think you're sort of like not graduating because that's not the right metaphor, but like you're actually growing into a whole different way of experiencing God without words. They can be so much richer. Uh, and then they kind of look at me like I'm crazy. Like what, you know, like that, that, that can't be, but do you find in, in, and again, I completely agree. Cataphatic and apophatic are complementary. One's not better than the other, but it does seem to me like, like we move into apophatic or into desiring more of that as we mature a little more in our faith. Is that a true way of looking at it or not? Well, I, I know that's been the case for me and, and for my wife. I, I don't know if it's if it's true for I think for a lot of folks maybe um, maybe they're where I was where was there's that feeling that nagging feeling that there's got to be something more, but not knowing what it is not and and, um, and I think that's changing now with things that are happening. Um, there's a much greater um, pantry of of resources and information available about contemplative spirituality yeah. um, that it, you know folks like uh, like Richard Rohr and and, um, and then also the whole mindfulness movement and all right. of that that people are becoming aware that these are options but uh, um, I think for a lot of folks yeah it's that nagging sense that there's got to be something more but not knowing what that what that something is yeah. Well, let's, I, I think that that leads us into, I'd like for you, if you can, and these are going to be very broad concepts. So um, you talk about three strands and you're, you, you, you write about three strands in your book, Buddhist meditation, Christian contemplation, and process theology, and how those three things weave together to lead us on this path of transformative faith and inclusive community. I think Buddhist meditation and Christian contemplation, uh, maybe many of us have a little bit more of an idea of what that is. So spend less time on those two and then spend a okay. little more time on process theology, because I think that concept, if we can get that concept, that unlocks the door for us. So if, if you could mm -hmm. talk about those three things and how they weave together. Sure. You bet. Um, so on the, I think I'll start with the on the the Buddhist meditation side of things. One of the things that, uh, just in my research, um, prior to to this book, started to see, um, you know, the, what's going on around us, which we're all seeing, is this explosion of mindfulness um, meditation as a very you know very popular thing. And in the book, I cite you know some examples. Um, such as up here in Seattle where I live, the Seahawks um, attributed some of their success to their uh, incorporation of mindfulness meditation into yeah, their training regime. 
And uh, yeah, there's some terrific movies. Although uh, they missed uh, the playoffs this year, Danny. I mean, you know, we yeah. have to we have to we have to lament that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So it's not a it doesn't it's not a, a cure all. It doesn't fix everything. <laughs> um, and there's yeah, you know, there's some uh, really powerful documentary films out there about folks taking mindfulness meditation into prisons, into penitentiaries. And uh, you know, into troubled schools and various with, with great success. So that's become a cultural thing that's going on right now. That's that's becoming difficult to ignore. Uh, what intrigued me was finding out uh, that uh, many decades ago there were uh, folks who were predicting this, um, who uh, were suggesting that we're going to see. Uh, Buddhism have a big impact in Western culture, um, and uh, and it, it appears that that they were correct in in that in that thinking. Um, and uh, just to cite one example uh, is the historian uh, Arnold Toynbee, um, yeah, the well-known historian who had, who wrote uh, back in uh, the 1950s. Uh, when a historian 1,000 years from now writes about the 20th century, he will surely be more interested in the interpenetration which occurred for the first time between Christianity and Buddhism wow. than in the conflict between the ideologies of democracy and communism. And, of course, Toynbee wrote that when the Cold War was was uh, yeah. going on, but he, in, in his estimation, he thought, actually... Um, by the end of this century and, and then uh, in future centuries, what's going to be really more interesting, more profound is going to be um, how Buddhism um, began to interact with Christianity in the West. And I came across quite a few other examples of that, uh, Christian thinkers, um, historians, uh, theologians, etc., who, who were suggesting that this was going to take place and it seems to be taking place and it seems to have have accelerated fairly rapidly uh, in tandem with the other phenomenon which we've been seeing which is sort of a decline uh, in Western Christendom starting in Europe and, and, and now in the US where we you know now we talk about the nuns the young people whose religious affiliation is none and the duns so there's a great interest in mindfulness meditation, which comes out of uh, the the uh, Theravada school of Buddhism. And uh, although all all forms of Buddhism essentially practice what we would call mindfulness meditation, it's it's apophatic meditative practice. Um, so that side of things really fascinated me, and I wanted to uh, just kind of set down a. a, a a, a framework of how Buddhism came to the West and the various uh, uh, stages and phases of, of Buddhism's coming into the West and then what some of the implications of that are. Uh, and one of the, the significant stories in that had to do with a, uh, a group of, of three young people who went to uh, India and Thailand and Learn meditation. That they, they were uh, three young Jewish kids who, who went there and got really into meditation. Ultimately, became meditation teachers, and um, came back to the U.S. and founded 
uh, the Insight Meditation Society, uh, actually in a former Catholic um, seminary, a, a abandoned, I guess, Catholic seminary in Massachusetts, in rural Massachusetts. And this was really the the uh, the seedbed for the the modern mindfulness movement, um, wow. this uh, Insight Meditation Society that they founded. Well, interestingly enough, just down the road from that Insight Meditation Society was a, um, a, a Benedictine monastery, and the abbot of the monastery was a guy named Thomas Keating, hmm. and. Um, the, the monks at this monastery um, noticed that um, young people were starting to show up at their monastery asking for directions to the Insight Meditation Society uh, up the road. <laughs> yeah. And, and as they interacted <laughs> with these, these young people, and they went, wait a minute, these are almost all young people who were raised as Christians, and but they're flocking to this uh, Buddhist meditation center to learn Buddhist meditation, um, they realized that they had no awareness at, of the, the, the rich Christian contemplative tradition. And these guys, being Benedictine monks, were steeped in that. Yeah. And they began to wonder, is there a way we could take the, the Christian contemplative practices that we follow, which date back to, you know, the fourth century or so. Oh, yeah. um, can, is there a way that we might be able to take these and make them accessible to modern day uh, Christians? And so they began working on that. A, a, a text uh, that was uh, really significant to them was a, a text called The Cloud of Unknowing. Yeah. And so they developed this method of prayer that they called prayer of the cloud and um, they began teaching it and very quickly the, the, the name got changed to centering prayer hmm. and so um, it's sort of interesting that that centering prayer kind of came about centering prayer in, in the popular Christian world came about um, a bit of as a reaction to um, the, the Buddhist mindfulness movement that was springing up in the West. Um, not that they're antagonistic towards it, just sort of as a reaction, saying, hey, we've got something to offer also that might be of benefit to folks. So I decided to dig into, in the book, the history of the Christian contemplative practice. Uh, again, going back to, um, well, going back to Jesus and to Paul, um, and then uh, digging into the uh, the early Christian desert monastics, the desert mothers and fathers, and folks like uh, Evagrius, and then um, continuing on to uh, John Cassian, who is yeah. considered to be sort of the founder of the European monastic movement, and uh, and then on into uh, the cloud of unknowing, and, and kind of following that thread. Uh, up into the modern um, implementations of Christian contemplation, such as centering prayer. Um, another uh, movement called the Christian Meditation Movement, founded by another Benedictine monk named John Main. Uh, so those are two of those three strands. Uh, was was looking at the history of those, and uh, and then also looking at the the commonalities and the affinities between them. In, in that, one of the interesting things 
that I discovered was um, how many Christian contemplatives, Christian monks, etc., uh, and how many Buddhist um, meditation teachers, Zen masters and such, were uh, corresponding with each other and have been for many, many decades wow. here in the West. For example, the famous uh, correspondences that occurred between Thomas Merton and D.T. Suzuki, the, yep. the uh, Zen teacher. Um, and uh, a sort of a culmination of that is a wonderful book written by Paul Nitter, who is a, uh, an eminent um, Catholic theologian who wrote a book called Without Buddha, I Could Not Be a Christian. Yeah. And uh, he, he talks about sort of passing back and forth between the Christian and the Buddhist world and how they don't, rather than uh, contradicting each other, conflicting against each other, how they actually enhance each other and feed each other and work together. Uh, so that, that was... Uh, very interesting, and I, I spend a fair bit of time on on this idea that, yes, it is possible to be a devout Christian and also um, employ the teachings of and practices of Buddhism. Right. Um, the, the third strand, the process theology strand, is um, not uh, required <laughs> for... Yeah. Uh, you know, for, for those other, but it adds an interesting um, perspective to and, it. And before you get into it, I what I want to do, like for listeners, okay, listeners, um, hear this as a possible lens uh, to view God and history through, because um, some people might find it threatening, right? And I don't, I, I shouldn't say that beforehand, but. If you find yourself feeling threatened, just sit with it and listen and, and see if it might be a helpful lens through which you can see God in history. Yeah, that, that's a, um, I'm glad that you said that. It, it, it can be challenging, and um, it reminds me of way back in my charismatic Christian days, there was a pastor who used to warn us about going to seminary. He, he called it cemetery because he <laughs> said, uh, if you go to seminary, it will destroy your faith. Um, you know, they'll teach you things that will wreck your faith. And he was absolutely right. Yeah. that it, it did wreck the faith, the form of faith that I had. And there's the, the joke about, you know, how many times did you lose your faith in seminary? Um, because you're being exposed to these challenging new ideas, and um, and some in some cases you look at them and you go, yeah, not so much. Yeah. And in other cases, it, it can really rock your world and and um, and change uh, uh, your outlook um, on God and on 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 your faith, etc. So, process theology was that for me when I encountered it. It, it very much rocked my world. And um, um, changed how basically changed how I look at the world and at, at the universe and, and at my relationship with God. So it can be very profound, but because of that, it can also be unsettling. Yeah. Um, the basic idea behind process theology is that um, a lot uh, it, it actually has its roots in the philosophical world. And a lot of the books on process theology are written by uh, 
people who know philosophy really well, which can be challenging for someone like myself who is not a trained philosopher, and uh, the jargon can be a little bit daunting. And so in the book, what I tried to do in the length of just one chapter was give sort of a primer on process theology and try to avoid as much of the academic philosophical jargon as I could. Um, and at the end of the book, I recommended some some other books that I, I, I think do that better than I do in a, in a more book-length form. So in process theology, uh, a, a fundamental thing is that we look at the world and, and we think of how how do we observe the world? How do we observe the universe? What can we actually see and observe? And what we see and observe is that uh, creation, the universe, the world is a process. It, in fact, really it's, it's a multitude, myriad processes interacting with one another um, from uh, you know, planets orbiting stars to uh, galaxies to the expanding universe to uh, the growth of a human from an infant to an elderly person to the growth of a tree to et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's all process. We tend to think of stuff in the universe as things. That's a tree. That's a person. That's a planet. That's a galaxy. That's an atom, etc. But what we've learned um, through science is when we really start to examine these things, they're actually processes. Now, some of them are very slow processes, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Uh, so they, it just looks like a thing to us. Um, and other things we can observe and actually see how this thing changes over time. Um, interestingly enough, that's very compatible with a, a, a core Buddhist um, view uh, of impermanence, that yeah. everything is in process and that everything uh, is contingent upon previous things. Um, and so one thing leads to another, and uh, etc. So process theology is, begins with saying that if we observe the universe, that's what we see is process. And, and how does that then fit in with um, our theology. Um, if I think of myself as a process, not a thing, in a sense that means I'm I'm a verb, not a noun. Yes. Um, and um, does that mean then that we can also think of God that way? God well, as a verb, not as a noun. Yeah, and I mean, fascinatingly, so I've, I've done a lot of thinking about this, Danny, sorry to interrupt, but, you know, when in the mm -hmm. classic Hebrew story of Moses meeting God at the burning bush, Moses has the audacity to ask God God's name, and then God says, essentially, I will be what I will be. And so God is essentially um, telling Moses, I am a verb. I will be mm -hmm. what I will be. It's just the it's a conjugation of this verb to be. And so um, I think it's absolutely fascinating, beautiful, rich, and true to even the Judaism, uh, Christianity, uh, that that God, God even um, talks about God as 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 a verb. So I love that. I love that. Mm -hmm. And 
it, yeah, and it's I, I think it's 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 all there. It's it's there, um, but we tend not to see it. Right. Um, Christ, Christian theology was heavily influenced by um, uh, by Greek philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, early on, Christian theology was heavily influenced by Neoplatonism, yep. um, and then later, um, with the rediscovery of um, uh, you know, in the exactly and, and Aristotle's sort of uh, substantialist uh, way of looking at things, that really uh, impacted Christian theology and shaped it. And by substantialist, I mean then is thinking of the world, the universe. In terms of substances, yeah. that's a tree. That tree is made up of these components. These components within that tree are made up of cells. Those cells are made up of components inside the cells. The components inside the cells are made up of molecules. The molecules are made up of atoms. And so we think of these objects um, in time and space, and that's a you know, very Aristotelian uh, that we do that. But it doesn't necessarily jive with how we understand reality to be uh, as, as processes. So what process theology says is, what are the implications if we set aside that substantialist way of looking at things and think of things in terms of process? Um, what does that imply? One of the implications would be that um, if everything is in process, everything is very dynamic, Yes. then God, uh, by implication, is also very dynamic um, and very involved with all of these processes going on in creation. And so uh, sometimes process theology is referred to as process relational theology hmm. because uh, it, it, a core tenet of it is that God is intimately involved with everything that's going on in the universe at every moment, um, every process that's occurring. And again, if we take this down to the atomic level, you know, we, we uh, our attempts to look at atoms and we can get into the quantum level and all that, what we see again is this incredible dynamism, uh, you know, the, the processes going on. It's not just these little fixed hard objects that are sitting there, um, and so in that in that process, in, in all of the interaction of the various uh, forces and things, God is intimately involved in all of that. Yes. Uh, so it 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 sort of turns the um, emphasis into a very dynamic, um, very active relational um, way of thinking about how we live out our faith. That God is not just um, this being way out there somewhere um, outside the universe who pre-wrote everything that would occur. And uh, yeah, there's an old wood carving from the Middle Ages of God sitting at a desk with a scroll spread out in front of him, which is is creation. And God, are, you know, it's already pre-written, pre-determined, and all of that. Uh, of course, that view of God brings up. Um, uh, some pernicious problems that have plagued uh, theologians through the centuries, such as the problem of evil. Right. Um, you know, if, if God already predetermined everything, then how do we explain 
when evil things occur, did that occur because God predestined it? And you know, I, I, I get in, I explore that a bit in, in the book as well. The, uh, the the views on that. But what process theology would say to that is, no, God did not predetermine that that would happen. Um, God being omniscient is everywhere and is, again, deeply, intimately involved with everything that occurs. Uh, and God being omnipotent knows everything that exists. But in the process view of things, what exists is this moment right now in an expanding universe um, this moment is the thing that exists the past is gone right we can't go back and change that and the future doesn't exist yet it's only possibilities and probabilities and so where uh, and this uh, as I started reading this in in uh, from various process theologians and process philosophers, it actually took me back to c s Lewis yeah. and there's a, a a great little bit in the screw tape letters where uh, the demon screw tape is counseling his protege wormwood about you know how to gain control of his human subject and and screw tape tells wormwood. Um, what you need to do is have your human subject either always preoccupied with the past, because the past is frozen, there's nothing there, it's, it's dead, it's lifeless, it's, or have your human subject always preoccupied with the future, since it doesn't yet exist. He said, but the thing you don't want to do is have your human subject focused on the present moment, because the present moment is is um, you know lit with with the rays of God's presence. Um, that's where we encounter God, as as you know Moses with the bush there. Uh, so that's sort of the idea, it, we, and it can get very very deep. This is really skimming the surface uh, of process theology. But the the thing that I would really emphasize is that it's about this idea that God can be um, that God is active in the present moment here and now um, and at any given moment what's happening is we're taking everything from the past that led up to this moment for us and all of that is being um, sort of synthesized into this present moment and um, and then as this present moment moves into the next present moment all of that becomes just data um, artifacts, that material that then gets used in the next present moment to and synthesized into what that moment will be. Right. The implication of the implication of that is that we have freedom. That at any given moment, um, how we use those materials from the past, that data, everything that led up to this moment, we have a modicum of freedom in how we use and apply that. It's a modicum of freedom because, of course, we're on a, you know, a trajectory. I, I, we can't suddenly uh, necessarily radically change the path that we're on, you know, that we've, we've been walking down for some time. But we do have some uh, freedom in what we do in this moment, uh, here and now, to perhaps change that trajectory. Yeah. 
And so this is this is the part where it gets really uh, exciting for me is that the process theology therefore says that at any moment in time, at this present moment, God is speaking into this moment, and we have the opportunity uh, and the freedom to listen to what God is saying, to align ourselves with God's uh, intention at, at any given moment. And to the degree that we're able to do that, then we are kind of um, changing our trajectory towards, uh, for lack of a better word, holiness, uh, you know, life centered in God. To the, the degree that we fail to do that, we miss the mark. Yeah. Um, and um, and so th- there's an exciting, then we're not waiting for this grand future event that's going to make everything right. It really is right here and right now um, in, in the present moment where we can listen to align ourselves with what God's intention is. And God is speaking into what's relevant to this moment right now continuously. Uh, and we can conform ourselves to that. That's where the tie-in is with contemplative spirituality, um, be that Christian contemplation, Buddhist meditation, etc. Because in contemplative spirituality, we're learning to distance ourselves from the all the stuff that's going on in our heads, all the distraction, all the, the stream of thoughts and things that are constantly playing. We're learning to step back from that and to, um, to, to live in a, an inner relative silence wherein we're more apt to be able to um, discern what God is doing in this present moment and be able to um, align ourselves with that. Yeah. Does that, does that make sense? That's beautiful. It's- yeah, and I thank you for the tie-in there. Because I mean, I you know I think people that are listening that are getting excited about a hopeful, integrative future uh, might ask, "Gosh, how do I start there?" You know, and and I think um, maybe the answer is um, start by recognizing, and maybe employing some apophatic prayer, some. Uh, yeah. letting go of um, some of the monkey mind and the endless chatter and not judging it, but just letting it go, letting, letting, uh, that's okay. You know, I sit here in 10 minutes of silence. I mean, whenever I, <laughs> when I started to do this and I would set my timer for 10 minutes of silence, <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, I would feel <laughs> terrible after about 30 seconds because I've thought about, you know, every, everything imaginable. Um, but but then I learned how to say, okay, that's okay. That's just, that's just my mind. That's just what it does. Um, hello, friend. Um, but what I'm trying to do now is open myself up to the God who's endlessly available, endlessly uh, participatory in what is happening in this very moment. So actually, I loved how you described the, the tie-in between, between process theology and, um, and meditation. So beautiful and, and and gosh and i should i should stress as, as, as you you touched on there that of course the great christian mystics of the past and the great buddhist mystics they were not process theologians right um so if process theology is challenging and and you know a bit too intense you don't need that to 
to uh, practice contemplative spirituality. It just adds, uh, yeah, an interesting lens, an interesting way to look at that from a uh, from a theological perspective. Yeah, and I find it helpful to to those people who maybe. And Danny, I mean, I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast are at the point where they, 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 they have given up certain ways of thinking because in theology that doesn't work, a theology that says, well, God is in control no matter what, so, and we don't, we, we can't explain evil, we just somehow think in some way God allowed it for some reason that we don't know. And they've, they've jettisoned that, but they haven't yet heard of, a, of an alternative. So that's that's why I think it's so helpful. It's it's just so helpful to go, oh, there is another way of thinking that I didn't make up that other people have found great hope and life and energy in. And and then there are other people that go, oh, that takes it too far. And to that I say, that's fine. <laughs> you know, right? I mean, that's totally fine uh, if you don't buy that. Uh, but it, And if anyone's in... It, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. You go. You go. Oh, uh, if anyone's interested, uh, I have a, a couple of, of little videos that I made um, uh, on just a, an introduction to process theology, which um, are accessible through my website, which is danielpcoleman.com. So uh, it's kind of a, a quick and easy way to go um, see uh, uh, a couple of videos that provide a uh, an introduction to process theology, and then uh, in the book I point to some some other resources that can help to flesh things out there. Cool. Well, thank you for that, um, Danny. I'm going to put that on the show notes. I will put um, ways to get in touch with you via uh, your website. I'll put links to those two intro videos. I'll put a link for people to buy your book, which is called Presence and Process, A Path Toward Transformative Faith and Inclusive Community by Daniel P. Coleman. Uh, so, And we are out of time, sadly. I loved, I loved this conversation, though. This was very energizing for me, and I think it's going to be hopeful for a whole lot of people. So, man, thanks, Danny. Uh, I, I really appreciate your time. Uh, it's great to talk to you, Steve. All right, friends, get in touch with Daniel Coleman. Again, I'll put his website on the show notes, but if you don't go there, just go to danielpcoleman.com. You can also uh, just Google him, Daniel P. Coleman. You'll find some interesting interviews uh, elsewhere that he's done, and uh, you can get you just can get a um, get into his work from wherever. Uh, wherever Google takes you. So uh, thanks, Danny. I, I appreciate it. And I end every podcast with this sort of mantra, uh, and that is we are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we're in it together. So I say that uh, as a bit of a benediction uh, to you as well. So thanks, Danny. I appreciate Amen. it. Oh, thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow me on Facebook at Steve Ween's Author, Twitter at Steve Ween's, and Instagram at Steve Ween's. And you can find all my work, all my books, the show notes, all kinds of other fun stuff on my website, steveweens.com. And please consider supporting me on Patreon. Lots of fun benefits for all levels of patrons. Check it out at patreon.com slash thisgoodword. Suburban